the rest of you amazing people can have a seat. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be back in 1 Peter this morning, uh, back in our Keep Moving series. So 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll start in verse 10 today. And, you know, I just love how God works. He, uh, he works, you know, in our planning and, and he works beyond our planning. You know, um, this song is just so appropriate for where we're going in God's word today. And the, the, the question I want us to wrestle with more than any other question this morning is this, this just one question, are you in awe? Are you in awe? Are you experiencing awe in your life? Awe in your relationship with God? When, when was the last time that just understanding who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, it just like stopped you in your tracks? When is the last time that, that you were confronted with the amazing truths of the gospel and it made you shed tears? This is the kind of awe that we're talking about today. This is the kind of awe and wonder we want God to move us into this year as a church. Some people define awe as a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. It involves being amazed by something sacred. We, 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 we experience awe when we are before greatness, right? Have you ever stood on the rim of Grand Canyon and looked out at the vast, vast gulf between where you are standing and the other side, the majestic colors and the sun hitting the rocks and you feel very, very small in those moments, but you know there is something much, much grander. It's called the grand, like there's much grander than just the size of this thing that there's telling a story of something more in life. Or maybe walking up to Niagara Falls and not seeing it with your eyes even, but before you see it with your eyes, you hear it with your ears, the roar of the waterfalls. It just starts maybe causing your heart to thump a little harder and, and you're in awe of this powerful creation of God. Maybe it's the first time your eyes fall on a newborn baby Congratulations to our newest parents, Caleb Wong and Stephanie Chan, who, uh, yeah, let's give it up. They're not here today because they're not here today because we're taking care of Nora, Bethany, uh, but they'll, you know, see this and uh, just so amazing. Even the first time I opened up the email to see her picture, it is just, you know, you just, you just want to, I've, I've looked at it a lot of times, you know, and I mean, I haven't looked at your picture a lot of times this week. I'm just saying, you know, um, we, 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 we're captivated by greatness majestic things that grab our hearts and catch our eyes. And, and, and listen, listen, listen to this. Every awe-filled moment in this life is designed to point us back to the giver of every awe 
filled moment. In fact, the one who is so awesome that everything derives its awe from how awesome he is. And I think about our journeys through life, and I think about my own journey in Christ, and there are so many times where, you know, I just long to get back to that love I had at first, that, that awe and wonder where I was just so amazed that God would ever think of me, that God would love me so much that he would send his son to die for me, that I could have life through him, not just life forever, but uh, an abundant life right now. And yet you and I both know, maybe you're new to Christianity and you're like, wow, this is kind of amazing. It sounds pretty amazing if God is this amazing and he wants me to join in on his amazingness. Uh, but, but, but maybe if you are like me and you've been in Christ for a period of your life, you know that there are times where our sense of awe and wonder diminishes. We lose the intensity and the frequency of being stunned by God, taken back by who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. But the encouraging news I have for you this morning is that Peter wants to help us get our awe back. He's going to talk in such glowing terms about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and how we should live in light of who he is every single day. These verses show us how incredibly blessed we are to live on this side of history, this side of the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see this morning first is is that we we are called to be in awe of our salvation in Jesus. This is what we see in verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me read these verses for us. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, now when you're reading the Bible, and when you come to any one portion of the Bible, like anything you would read, if you, if you read an article on the internet, you know, it, it's not too wise to like jump down to the middle of the article and try to figure out like what the author is communicating. You want to know what he's talking about throughout the whole article, right? And so uh, just as a quick uh, summary and maybe review for some, when he says this salvation, he's referring to everything that he's just said in verses one through nine. He's talking about us experiencing new life in Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. Now we have been cleansed from our sin by the blood of Christ, and he has brought us into this whole new world, whole new reality, where we have a living hope, a life full of love, and we carry an inexpressible joy throughout our lives in this troubled world. It's pretty amazing realities. And so it's this salvation that he says is 
what we should be in awe of. And he gives us four reasons why we should be in awe. If you just follow along as I explain these verses for us. Number one, he says, this grace is yours. Look at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Here's what Peter is saying, all right? Just, just received this today, okay? Peter is saying that everything Jesus Christ accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to God, where he reigns over all things right now, is yours if you have trusted and believed in him. So what that means is every promise in this book is yours. Every word that describes the life that God wants us to enjoy, it's yours. Go back and read Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then you just go back and read the chapter, and he's going to talk a lot about some of those blessings. Certainly not all those blessings, but many of those blessings. Or maybe go to Revelation 19, and you'll see that in, in the end, when Jesus returns, we're going to sit at a table with him. And we're going to feast at his invitation forever with him. All of this is because of God's grace to us. You see, this word grace helps us understand how this is even possible. Because the story of, of humanity that we see here in the pages of this book is that we don't, we don't uh, come into this world saying, wow, God, you're amazing. God, I can't wait to live my life for you. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself to you every single day because you know best and you're so wise and you're so good. The opposite is true. We are those who have a great prolific ability to turn our back on God. To say, God, like, hey, you said this, but forget that. I'm doing my own thing here. I'm going my own way. And what the Bible says is our sin brings spiritual death to our lives. And it makes us deserving of God's judgment. Not just separation from God now, but separation from God forever. But I got to tell you, that's not what God wants for you. He, wa he wants you to know him, to have this relationship that he made you for, to, to experience his love day by day by day through Christ and what he's done for you. He just keeps chasing us down day after day. So if, if you're new to Christianity, if maybe you've, you've kind of flirted with the idea. You know, I, I know how this works, you know. Uh, you kind of flirt with the idea of like, hey, Jesus seems to be legit. I really like what he said. I like the way that he lived his life. And it, there's a lot of evidence for that whole rising from the dead thing. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, I should follow him. I just want to tell you, God's grace is ready for you to receive. He wants you to experience his love. So we're, we're in awe of our salvation because we've received this grace. But then number two, uh, this, this salvation was prophesied hundreds of years in advance. All right, I just think, think about that. Like 
if, if God is real and God is really working out a plan, then this God would be able to tell everyone in advance what he's about to do to bring back humanity into a relationship with him. And that's exactly what happens in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years, we're talking 1,400 years with the first five books of the Bible written by Moses uh, and then the writings of David and the, the prophecies of you know, Isaiah and, and Zechariah and, and, and Hosea. They're all pointing us to the fact that Jesus would, in these words, suffer and then experience subsequent glories. And what Peter is doing here, he's not just saying like, this is not so much apologetic, like if you don't believe, you should believe because God said it in advance, which gives a pretty good indicator that it's legit and true. Um, But it's really for those who have believed to say, look, God didn't do this so that, you know, we would say like, hey, God had knowledge, he dropped some knowledge on, you know, Moses, David, and Isaiah, and and now he was able to tell you about that. No, Peter is doing what Jesus does in Matthew 13. When he says in verses 16 and 17, but blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. And did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. When Peter says that they searched and inquired, it means that they uh, investigated with, with uh, zeal. And they, they, they searched out because they wanted to know, hey, who would the Messiah be? And when would he come? And so Peter is saying, look, you have the more privileged position than even these writers of the Bible who predicted the coming of Christ because now you are the recipients. You live on the other side. We should be in awe of our position. And then similarly, he says the same things about the the angels. Look at verse 12. He says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you talking about the prophets and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look, things into which angels long to look. What, what Peter is saying is that what you experience, angels want to see. Angels are so captivated by what God has done for us in Christ. They know that when Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and died a cruel death and rose again from the the grave, declaring his victory over sin, Satan, and death, that the greatest moments in history were unfolding before the eyes of humanity. And he's saying this is so grand, it's so glorious, it's so captivating that even angels, they, they, they long to look and they, they, they look but they can't experience in the, in the ways that you do because they don't have your story. Only we have been redeemed by Christ. This kind of looking is re- reminding me of you know how uh, we went to a, a wedding in Houston uh, just a, a couple of weekends ago on MLK weekend and uh, I had the privilege of officiating for some good friends, former members of 
Redemption Hill. Many of you may remember uh, Kaylee Rayor, and uh, you know the pastor was supposed to get there at three, an hour in advance. So we rolled in about two fifty-seven, and um, and so we were rolling into this you know reception hall. But all of the wedding party, all the groomsmen, all of the bridesmaids are lined up against the windows, and they're looking out. Why? Because the bride had just come into the courtyard with the photographer, and they were all captivated. They all wanted to get a look at the bride on her wedding day. And this is the kind of looking, this is the kind of of, of interest that the angels have with the story of God's salvation and what he's done for us in Christ. And Peter is saying, look, what they long to look at, you have received it. It's yours. God's given us his grace to us. The prophets prophesied it. The angels longed to look, and then this was all empowered and accomplished by God's spirit. It says in verse 11 that the prophets prophesied this by the spirit of God. That's that's the Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, inspired them to write these things, which, oh, by the way, is an argument for the divine nature of the Bible. And so he's saying, the, the, the Holy Spirit was in the, in the work of the, the writings of the prophets. But not only that, this prophecy that was uh, pr- predicted by, the, by these Old Testament prophets was also then announced by people, hundreds and thousands of people who have communicated the gospel since then. And guess how they do it? Verse 12. The things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So, so, so we see the, the divine activity of, of how God is bringing and making known his salvation. We should be in awe of God's work to us, for us, in Christ. And I just want to put this before you. As we think about, you know, last week we shared our 2020 vision and the ways that we want to see God show his abundant nature through multiplying his work among us and in so many different ways. We gave four focus points, but the, the, the ways go way beyond that. I love to hear the stories from community groups of people with dreams in their heart for, for God working in them this year and in our church in larger ways. But that, that first focus point, we said that we want to pray that God would save 50 people this year. And we give a number, not because we want to be motivated by numbers, but we give numbers because they, they hopefully give us focus to our prayers, specifically to God, you would do something that we've never seen you do in the life of our church. That we're hoping to see an amazing move of God. But listen, this is what I know about, about how this works. In our culture, n- not one of us will frequently Talk about our relationship with Jesus unless we are living in a real-time awe of who God is and we are empowered by his Holy Spirit moving us out to love people in his name, right? And so we, we see here that, that this, is, this is what moves us. This is what empowers us to live the life that God has called us to live as we are in awe of him. But I want to spend a little bit more time about, uh, you know, our vision from last week. We talked about four focus points of 50 new believers and five new groups and 30 new leaders and also a vision that as God grows our church, we need to be thinking about and preparing for multiple services, maybe in the fall if God brings the growth. 
And I want to spend time on the multiple services piece. Why? Because that's an area that we've never gone into as a church before. I mean, we, we have groups, and that's kind of easy for, for us to understand. And we have leaders against, you know, across uh, different groups and teams. But we've never gone into this new territory of multiple services as a church. I want to just share some more vision behind that. As we talked about last week, and even what we see here about being in awe of God's salvation, the, the number one reason why we believe it's wise to prepare for multiple services is because of God's heart to save. God wants to see. This is amazing, right? God wants to see the five million people that make up greater Boston, he actually wants to see every single one of them believe in Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so the primary mission of the church is to multiply disciples of Christ who discover who he is and follow him all the days of their life. And so we're just saying, if we're praying for 50 people to come to Christ and we're seeing new people, we're so happy if you're new, we have new people here every single Sunday. As we see new people connecting, we're just saying we need to be responsible to prepare to be able to welcome more people. If you pray for rain, you better buy an umbrella, right? You know what I'm saying? And yet, I understand that even as we all get excited about God's heart to save, like if the Holy Spirit is beating uh, within our chest, like we want to see more people know what we know about Jesus, and yet we all experience a conflicting emotion around the idea of going to two services, because we think about the question, well, well, what about our community and what about the, the unity that we uh, experience and we, we share in this one service? What, what, what will happen to that? And listen, our pastors understand this. We understand that there's a relational cost to adding new people and to multiplying whatever it is you fill in the blank. Multiply a group, there's a relational cost. Multiply a service, there's a relational cost. Multiply churches, sending people out to other churches in Boston or across the world, there's a cost. I mean, those of you who know me know that I want to greet every single person here on Sunday. You know, it's like having the conversations at the door and I'm talking to one person, but I'm kind of giving like somebody a dap on their way out, you know, just because I love people. I totally understand the questions. But consider just two things about community and unity, okay? Number one, Sunday morning is not the primary place where we build community as a church, and that, the reason for that is we, we understand that we all have a relational bandwidth, and it is impossible, I mean, you can, you can disagree, but it is impossible to have 400 deep, meaningful relationships in the life of our church. That number is how many active attenders we have in our church these days. That means 400 people have attended a Sunday, a group, or a team three times in the last six months. Pretty awesome, pretty amazing. And so we're just saying that, that, that Sundays, we love the community that's happening, but the primary place for that is groups and community groups where we're going deeper with God and deeper with one another in community. 
But then also, as we think about unity, unity is not simply just being a part of the same family, but it's part of being in the same mission. This is what we read in the book of Acts. This is what we see when Paul's talking about in Philippians 1, 27. He's praying, and we, this is our prayer for our church. We want to have one mind, one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel that we would grow deeper in the faith of the gospel and that we would be able to share the, the, the faith of the gospel with more and more people in our lives. And so, number one, God's heart to save. But then number two, access. Sunday access. This is, this is both removing barriers and creating opportunities. Church leadership experts say that when a church is 70% of capacity, that new people begin to feel uncomfortable, right? And, and just think about a couple of examples, practical examples. Okay, we're not, we're not 70% capacity right now, okay? Or we've been talking more about this a long time ago. But, but, you know, how many of you came in this morning and deliberately sat by someone you have never met before? Did anyone do that? No one, no one does that, Right? Or, if a family of five comes in, when we have 300 people in this uh, room, it's going to be very difficult for them to find a spot to sit as a family, right? And so it's, it's about removing barriers to people having an amazing experience when they come and worship with us, but it's also about creating opportunities. People love options, Right? We think about, um, you know, people that they maybe have uh, work schedules that conflict with, you know, a 1030 service, or they, they have different family or travel plans or sports schedules. I mean, I, we, we uh, ate at Sal's uh, about six months ago, and there was a, a server there named Jackie who said, you know what, my friends took me to a church, it sounds like yours, and I would love to be there, but I work at 11 every single Sunday. Jackie could come when we have multiple options. Or just yesterday, I was reaching out to someone connected to our church. And I, and I don't want to share this example just like, hey, you know, here's, a, here's another reason. But, but she said, hey, I already have plans. I bought my girl's movie tickets at 1130. We can't make it. We'll hope to see you next week. But it is, isn't it amazing when we have more options for people to move in to be able to experience what we're experiencing on Sundays. But, but as pastors, we, we're saying, look, we're not moving to multiple services until we're eclipsing that 70% capacity mark, all right? But, but it's all about preparation for what God is up to. Number three, a third reason is a serve and worship culture, a serve and worship culture. Uh, many of our team leaders and team participants go above and beyond in the life of our church. If you have served on a team in the past year, would you raise your hand up high where we can see you? Okay, like, let's give it up for everyone who serves with teams at Redemption Hill. Thank you. We have, we have a serving church. This is what makes Redemption Hill such a great church. It's not just a few leaders who are wholeheartedly given to the mission. It's all of us working together, right? Now watch this. How many of the people who just raised their hand have served multiple times in one month or filled in when they weren't scheduled or served on multiple teams? Raise your hand. 
See, look, look around. Keep them up. That's a lot of hands. Can we give it up for those people as well? And so listen, going to multiple services may be exciting for some because we have, you know, kids teams workers who are saying, you know what, I would love to be in the service every single week, even as much as I love serving with kids frequently. So it gives them the opportunity to serve in one and worship in one, but also on the flip side, you have people who are saying, you know what, Pastor Tanner, love you, love our pastors, love the vision, love God's heart to see people saved and added to our church family. But you know what, I've, I've been sacrificing this year. And I'm a little tired. And it's like, I want to say yes to more serving, but to add hours to my Sunday rhythms, that's a big ask. And we understand that. But consider this, when, when we add 60 to 80 people on Sunday mornings coming regularly, what does that do for our serve teams? That adds more people that will be serving with our teams, which we believe is going to not increase the responsibilities by our current team members, but it's going to reduce that burden and give more people the opportunity to move into their God-given potential and God-given shape to serve Christ here on Sundays. Just like with the 70% mark, if, if our teams are not in a healthy position, both in leadership and staffing levels of teams participating, then we're going to know, hey, we want to get there, but it's not at this time. We need to see our teams and leaders get in a healthier spot. And then finally, number four, the larger multiplication vision we have for Redemption Hill. Many of you have heard us say over and over and over again, we didn't come to Boston to plant a church. We're so thankful for Redemption Hill, but we came here to start many, many churches out of Redemption Hill. And so when we see God multiplying disciples, that will lead to more multiplying disciples, which is going to meet need that we need to multiply churches and services in those churches to continue to reach out to the five million people who are part of this greater region. And so the main thing you need to hear here is that it's not an either or, it's a both and. And if God moves in such a way that we have a church planter and church planting team before we're ready to go to two services, we'll plant a church first and then we'll go to multiple services down the road. I share all this just to give you more vision. I only had a, a few minutes to share last week in terms of the, the, the sweeping vision. I want to spend most of the time in John 6, but I, I want you to hear more of the vision behind it and understand that there's a decision-making framework in place as we think about where God's taking us in the future and we prepare for his reign. Are we being spirit-led? Are we seeing the kind of momentum in our church where our teams and our leadership are in healthy places? Is this the best stewardship of our time, talent, and treasure? These are the questions that we're asking. And we realize that there is a cost to this, and there's always a cost to stepping out in faith and following God in his love mission, right? But the cost and the price we pay is always worth it so that more and more people have access to the gospel and we see God move among us in amazing ways.
the, the, the awe-inspiring salvation that we have received. We want to give it away, but we not only want to give it away, we want to live in light of it every single day, which brings us to our second point in 1 Peter chapter 1, that we should live an awe-filled life through hope and holiness. Live an awe-filled life through hope and holiness. Look, look at verses 13 through 16. Peter says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Where Peter is going now, he's concluded his introduction in verse 12, and now he's getting into some practical instructions for what it looks like to live in light of the salvation that we've received. And so again, this, this, this first word in verse 13 is so important. Therefore, what he's saying is building on everything that he just said about the salvation that we've received in Christ. It's the it's the indicative imperative flow of Scripture. What I mean by that is the indicatives are what God has done for us in Christ and the imperatives are what God has said to do in light of what he has done. You see that? And so that's why everything in the Christian life is grace-motivated. Everything in the Christian life is a response to who he is and what he's done. And so there are two key instructions here in these verses. He says to set your hope fully on Christ and to live a holy life in light of who God is. First, he says to set your hope. Peter wants them to keep their eyes looking up. There's something better. There's so much, something so much better ahead that, that, that awaits you in Christ. And, and, he, and he talks about this in, with the phrase, set your hope fully on the on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus returns, he is going to bring with him a new heavens and a new earth where there will be perfect harmony between God and man, man and man, man and creation, God and creation. There will be no more sin, no more sickness, the, the life that we've always wanted, a world that is better than the best utopian dreams pinned by man, this is what is coming. And so we set our hope on it, but, but we see even by the language here that this requires great mental effort. It requires great concentration. This is why over and over again in the Bible, uh, it'll say in Romans, uh, you know, Eight, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Or Galatians 3, set your minds on things above. It takes a focused effort, concentration, to set our hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. It does not happen automatically. And that's why Peter gives two descriptors of what it looks like to set our hope. He, he says, first, preparing your mind for action. And let me... Uh, rewind to some older translations of the Bible that say, check this out, gird up your loins. Gird, that's what the, the, the text would literally say in the Greek, gird up your loins. And the reason that newer translations don't say that is because no one has a clue what that means when I just said that. 
But to gird up one's loins is referring to uh, ancient dress in the Middle East, which is still, you know, the dress of many today in modern times, where a man's shirt would flow down to his ankles. And so if he had to do serious work or if he had to move with quickness or agility, he had to gather up his shirt and tuck it into his belt so that he could move and do whatever it is that he needed to do. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's, he's saying that you need to be prepared in this kind of way with a with freedom and a, and, a, and a full focus on this hope that you have in Christ. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. To be sober-minded means we have clarity of vision. We're clear-minded. We're not distracted by sin or the schemes of the evil one, but we're fully focused in on who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. In the words of Hebrews 12, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we set our hope on Christ. And then, number two, we seek to be holy as God is holy. What, is it, what does it mean to be holy? Look, look back in verses 15 and 16. Let me start in 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. To be holy before God means to be set apart. It means to live a distinct life. It means to, to reflect God in all of our ways. And so we see this, this encouragement to holiness is given in both a negative command and a positive command. Negatively, he says, don't be conformed to, the, to, to your former uh, ignorance and to the passions of your former ignorance. He's, he's talking about the desires that we had, uh, not participating in the things that, that belonged to our lives before we met God, before we knew what he wanted for our lives, the things that break God's heart, the, the things that, that, that don't reflect his pristine character and design for our life, his best for our lives. He's saying, put those aside. But what I love about God is God is not just a God who says, hey, that's bad for you, but God much more often is saying, not only, hey, that's not great for you, that's bad for you, but this is great for you. So that's where the positive command comes in when he says, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Holiness Yes, is about 1,000 no's that we say over the course of our days and weeks and years, but it is also about 10,000 yeses that we are pressing into everything that God wants us to be to reflect who he is. I love how theological this encouragement is to live a practical life before God is in verses 14 through 16. We have to be driven by a vision of who God is if we want to live the kind of life that God desires for us. Richard Lentz said that anyone who is not driven by a theological vision will be driven by a vision of expediency. What that means is they'll just do whatever they think is good to do at the time, which may or may not be in line with what God desires. 
And so we see this theological nature of the encouragement to live a holy life when he says, as he who called you is holy. This calling is the divine calling of God when you may hear the gospel from someone, even me today, who's talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what he's done for us, how amazing it is, how you have a full hope and eternal hope and all these great things. But the call of God is when God is whispering to your heart and saying, hey, it's true. This is for you. I don't just love the world generically. I love you personally. I want you in on this. I want you to live the life that I made you to live. That's the call of God. But then also, we, we see that we're called to be holy in all our conduct. Why? Verse 16, as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's, it's in light of who God is that we think the way we think and we want what we want and we love what we love and we act the way that we act. And God is saying in every single thing in your life, in every day of your life, every moment of your life, the, the call is to reflect who he is. Be in awe of God's salvation. Live an awe-filled life through hope and holiness, but, but see the connection between the two. The connection between the two encourages us to live an awe-filled life and this happens when we are in awe of what Christ has done. Living an awe-filled life happens when we are in awe of Christ, what Christ has done. Most of you are aware that Kobe Bryant died tragically and unexpectedly last Sunday afternoon. I don't know about you. I got home from church at about, I don't know, maybe... Um, maybe about three in the afternoon, and, um, you know, the, the, the girl said something about Kobe Bryant, and then, you know, I started looking for news articles and headlines, and just, the, 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 just this can't be true, right? Just the, the first news, it was just total shock that, that something like this could happen, but then the details came out about a helicopter and this and that, and, and then the reality starts to sit in. And there's been much said about Kobe's life and there will be much more said about who he was and the things that he accomplished and, and, and what we can learn from, from his greatness as an athlete and the things that he was trying to accomplish in life. But I think there are three things for us to consider as we uh, consider this text here this morning and related to, to the tragic events of this week. Number one, life is short and salvation is here. I mean, as we think about our own mortality, none of us are promised tomorrow. And so maybe, maybe that's caused you to question your own mortality. Maybe you say, you know what, hey, I really need to consider what's most important in my life and what I'm living for and what happens after death. And today I'm here to tell you and invite you into this great story of Jesus and the life that he offers you through his life, death, and resurrection. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you're saying, you know what? I want to experience this life God made me for. I want to have eternal life with God forever. If that's you, say yes to God today. 
But then number two, maybe you're saying, you know what, I want to make my life count. Kobe was so dedicated to, to what he did, and he was so accomplished, and, and all that. And we start to hear these stories, right? They're basically kind of framed under one narrative, like, hey, be like Kobe. Be like Kobe in this, or be like Kobe in that. And there's so much that we can learn from, from the example of others. And yet, what Peter is inviting us into is the greatest story, the greatest invitation that God has made us to be like him, that he wants us to reflect him with our lives. But then number three, uh, I think what made last weekend the most horrific and, and tragic was, was not just the loss of Kobe's life, but it was the loss of the eight other lives, including his own daughter. And as the dad of three daughters, it, it made me pay attention in, in a different way this week as we saw the, the pictures and the stories about Gianna Bryant's life. But, but one, of the, one of the beautiful pictures that we see in her life is her resemblance to her father, right? Not only in her physical appearance, but her love for basketball and her desire for greatness. She wanted to come to New England with us to play at the University of Connecticut. And what's under everything that Peter is saying about the way we are to live our lives is that we do so as God's children so that we will become more and more and more and more and more like him. And so I don't know what it is for you today. Maybe you're saying, life is short and I want to get my life in line with the life God wants for me. If that's you, you can receive salvation today. Just saying, God, I need you in my life. I want to follow you in a wholehearted commitment to Jesus today. Maybe you're saying, I want to I uh, just live wholeheartedly and reflect God as my father and give my life to him in every single way. W whatever it is in these moments of prayer before we sing, I want to invite you to respond as God leads. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us such a great salvation. And God, we want to be in awe of who you are. We want to live an awe-filled life that reflects your greatness and your glory everywhere we go in everything we do. And so, God, we know that this is only a result of your power working within us, your grace extending everything we need to say yes to you for the first time or to, to continue to say those 10,000 yeses to what you have set before us. And so, God, we ask that today as we, as we respond to you, as we've heard your voice, that you would lead us to take the next step that you want us to take. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.